Welcome to the Productivity Podcast, joined today by fellow director at Rethink, Sue Heddo. Hi, Sue. Hi, Simon. So I think this podcast was brought about around your frustrations from various comments and other podcasts around people compromising operating model and service, or is there a choice to be made? So if we kick off with the big question then, do you have to choose between productivity and service? I think it's too simplistic a view to think about it that way. It can be too easy to think about cost savings as just taking out service. But I actually think what what businesses have to do is take a step backwards and think what's really important for them and their brand. So I think it's got to be underpinned by what their brand's about and what they mean for customers and make sure that they're then delivering on the things that make them different and unique for customers. It's easy to sort of cut away at cost that doesn't make a difference. I think when businesses don't understand what's important to their customers and don't really consider their operation and how it works and what their operating model is, then I think it's easy to make wrong decisions. And so I genuinely don't believe there's a, there's a dichotomy in the two because you have to look at your sales and grow your sales if you're going to be a successful business. And to do that, you have to deliver on your service model, whatever that is. I think the challenge is knowing what your service model is. So there's a challenge around what is my service model and should that be driven by listening and speaking to customers or should that be driven by the organisation in terms of just being really clear about what it is? It's a mix of both. I think first of all, though, you've got to have a clear view on what your brand proposition is, what you stand for, what you are going to deliver and then how that's executed into store, into other channels through wholesale routes, whatever your routes to customer are, it's got to come through that. And the the strong brands that do really well and thrive and grow are the ones that have got that really clear view on what they're about and have got a clear, consistent message through all of it. So I think you start with your brand and then have to think, well, and then how are customers reacting to it? And customers change and evolve all the time and competitor causes different shifts. So I think you have to be looking at it and Brands should be looking at their brand and therefore what that means for their operation on an ongoing basis. So to put it into context then, who does a good job or who's clear? You have two retail examples of brands that are really clear on what they're about and how that then flows through to customer. A kind of ones that are to a degree at opposite ends of the, the service scale. So the first one I'd use would be Apple. So if you go into one of their stores, there's loads of people about And their service model is about helping you engage with their products. It's not a hard sell. They're there to give you advice and information. And it's because ultimately they're a brand that believe in kind of the wonderfulness of their products. Their products sell themselves. They're a brand that produce really useful tools for people. And their shops are all about getting those tools into people's hands and letting them try them out. And they know that the products will speak for themselves and people will want them. Their margins on it you know, it's a high price, high margin item, means that actually they can afford that service model. So it all fits together really well. And wherever you go in the world, you get pretty much the same experience in an Apple store. Do you think Apple are bothered if you buy something in the store? I think they want you to use their products, however you buy them, whether that's through a third party retailer, their shops online, they probably don't matter. Okay, we said you had two examples. So the other one I'd use is Aldi. You know what you get in in Aldi. You're not going to find somebody to ask about their mozzarella or whatever. It's 
that's not what they're about. They're about having um, good product range, good prices, and then serving you when you get to the till. So really, it's at the till is the only time you'll see somebody. They'll be polite, but they're about speed. They're not about standing, having a massive chat with you. They're there to get you through and get on to the next customer. And it's really clear what to expect. And that's pretty much what you get every time. So customers go there because they go for the prices and they can get the products that they want. And you don't have to go around a massive store to get it. So they're just very clear on what they're doing. Always deliver it. Talked about how it's important that you understand as a brand the promise almost to the customers. Is it also important to understand that you probably don't appeal to everybody? So there's going to be some people that would, for whatever reason, never shop Apple. There's going to be some people, for whatever, that won't go into an Aldi because they don't like the experience or they think the products are inferior or they don't want to wait. So is it almost as important to not try and appeal to everybody so you're too broad and almost understand who you do appeal to and do a really good job at it? Yeah, I think that's important. And some of those brands that do really well almost by default have a niche that they apply to. So if you think about some of the sport and fitness brands, so Adidas, Nike, people like that, they do really well, but actually they're appealing to people that buy sportswear. They're not trying to appeal to everybody. They've been helped by the fact that a lot more people wear sportswear than used to, but actually they're clear they're about sport. So it's clear from that point of view. And I think there are some examples of brands that have struggled where they've had a very broad audience because actually it's very easy for niche players to come and capture bits of what you sell and it's very hard to target so an example of that would be like the department stores where at one time the department store was the only place you could go and see a huge range now you just turn on your laptop and you can get access to whatever retailers you want you don't have to go to a department store anymore to see a wide range and because they served everybody then it's really hard for them to target at things. And they perhaps end up doing things like vague values, which you see coming through in some of the the adverts that you see at Christmas. They're kind of trying to appeal to an emotion and values. But actually, have they got a very clear proposition anymore? I think that's part of their problem. Well, Oxford Street probably tells you not with going in the the three that are next to each other without mentioning any names, that they're, they're all have a wide breadth but no depth yeah so if you want something specialist you can probably order it through them online if you happen to stumble across something you want fine but actually the only depth comes from things they don't own like concessions so beauty hall etc where it's a fairly standard offering in xyz retailer department store and i think one of the challenges has been that the producers the manufacturer brands have got sharper in how they interact with customers so I think it probably started with online with the rise of online sales they realized they'd got a direct route to customer and that must help their margins because if you're selling it in somebody else's you have to split your margin with that retailer if you can sell it directly online you keep all the margin yourself and then once you're doing it online well then it's like well is it that hard to set up our own shops and we're seeing that rise of showrooming So people setting up showrooms with just having sort of their flagship stores in London or wherever. And they're using that linked with social media, Instagram, um, all the other different routes that are available to get directly to customer, to see them going more directly to customer. And you see that happening across, you see it in beauty, you see it in clothing, you see it in 
all of the electronics, you know, Microsoft have had their shop on Oxford Street for a little while. So all of them are sort of looking at other ways of getting to customers. If it's not about compromising operating model or the way you interact with stock and customers and service, does it all boil back to then what you can afford? So if you can't afford your operating model, therefore you can't deliver your brand promise proposition, therefore your service suffers. Which comes first? Because you could have the best brand proposition then realise actually operationally you can't afford to deliver that, which therefore probably means as a consequence training and service as the intangible or difficult things to measure in store suffer. I think if you're not doing a good job of your operating model, that's what can happen. I think the reality is you have to think about what's the essence of your brand that you're trying to deliver and then how do you deliver that? And there's more tools than ever to help people deliver that service. So you can use things like how do you use kiosks online, some of the technology that can help you. I think one of the challenges is that a lot of retailers have found they've actually got too many outlets for a world where you can buy a lot more stuff online. So some of the challenges, do you need all the shops that you've got? And do you need fewer shops that you can afford whatever your right model is? So I think there's different ways of doing it. There's also really looking hard and being innovative about how you do all the stuff that you have to do to make a shop run. So whether that's filling your shelves, but there's also quite a bit of admin. So how else can you you be really ruthless about those sorts of things and contract them out, centralise them, do other things that mean your store team aren't trying to do a million and one things. I think a big challenge is that it's easy for people, if you recruit generalists, it's easy for them to fall back into being busy. Because for a lot of people, being busy and doing a task is actually more comfortable than being available for customers. And you get that dilemma because if you're being available for a customer but you're not doing anything, then how do you manage that time as well? So it isn't always easy, but it's about understanding where do you have that difference with your customer and then making sure that your, your shops and locations are right size so that you have got enough customer flow to make it all work. So there's some quite big stuff to achieve in there, you know, yeah. reformatting, respacing, resizing, recruitment, all that kind of stuff. So that that's all well and good, but is medium to long term and difficult to achieve as the high street shows you. So, you, you know, there's not many that have got it right or even maybe close to getting it right and considering it. So in terms of smaller steps, there must be some things in organisations around alignment to the brand promise, let's call it, that make a difference. So if I think back to my retail days, things that would destroy that model would be where you'd get allocations of stock you didn't know about that weren't relevant to your store. You didn't have the cost or the the money in your labour model to work it. It was just get on with it. So, of course, then that means typically that people work work harder or um, attrition goes up because it happens more regularly People wait longer in terms of customers at the queue because you have to sacrifice people on the checkouts to put the stock out because your warehouse is bursting. Again, have you got good examples where you've seen alignment or examples where you've seen really poor alignment in organisations from almost top down of the promise doesn't really fit with operationally when you get to a store level, how things happen? The centre will drop one thing in, there'll be another department in the centre that will then ask you to do performance reviews every month, another one that will ask you to 
I don't know, paint the bollards red every other week. There's a load of other stuff that happens that is all well and good, but doesn't necessarily tie back to what you're trying to achieve. I think some of the time it goes right back to what's happening on on boards, you know, at a very senior level. So there'll be some businesses where the operations are seen as the sort of slightly grubby people that just have to do what they're told, rather than it be seen as, as a professional activity to do. And running a store well is requires thought and planning. It isn't something that happens by accident. So I think you're right. It is all those things that kind of put in unexpected workload. And it's also where you haven't got a culture of compliance. We'll spend time in stores where the store team are busy running around looking after stock because perhaps their stock file isn't accurate because they're not complying with the company processes in terms of how to manage it. So they end up in a mess. And I think it's easy to have stores that are, you know, your top 10% of stores that are run well and then end up with an operation that's actually very difficult for the rest of the team to, to manage and doesn't go so well. And that's where area managers and coaches and things can play a big part by helping make sure that stores know what they're doing, give them a helping hand, stopping them getting into, into those poor territories. So I think it's a mix of, yes, things that head office do. It can be, for example, things like price changes going down every day. You know, you'll see examples of stores where they'll have to do a whole load of price changes to change something down by a penny that then goes up again the next day. That just puts in extra work that takes people away from time with customers. I mean, I'm all, I've talked about it on a number of these podcasts about the way the world for retailers has moved to more agile in recent months. So there's been less bureaucracy. People have got stuff done that's been on their list for six months in a couple of days because the way the world's been operating. And I'm a big advocate of that. Actually, on this subject, for me, it's about governance. I think all those things we've mentioned in the last two minutes are kind of what I call funding gaps. So where your salary model, however you create your salary or workload for stores, has some flaws or gaps in it. Head office driven stuff that's not funded. So like you say, we plan for 500 price changes a week. Actually, each week we get get 100 wrong. And I've seen examples lately where it's not even the price changes, it's the unit measurement changes or it's, you know, Mm. it was 6.1p per... 100 mil and they add it as 6.2 so the, the, the stores are changing it thinking well actually the price isn't even changing but there's a process to action it then some will look at it and say the price changes i've not put it out so therefore your metrics are wrong others will go and change it wondering well i really don't understand this health and safety driven stuff i think at the moment's key so there's lots of stuff going on that could potentially put a dent in your funding or change the way that people are working have you funded it do you know how long it takes and right first time. But that all comes back to, for me, like you say, the board and then the senior people in those organisations being aligned and making clear or having a clear decision-making process of what we're asking people to do means they have to run harder, work harder, work faster, therefore service quality suffers, which is back to your annoyance, I know, at the, at the start. Yeah. Or actually it costs us X and it's the right thing to do from a health and safety, a customer, a brand point of view therefore we have to fund it or being more and more rigid in the world of saying okay that's fine supplier has to pay for it if they want these price reductions we need like you say to outsource it so do we outsource all our promotions do we turn them all into cardboard fsdus freestanding display units that are easier to maintain do we have ends that wheel on wheel off do we do less of it so i think for me there's that bigger picture stuff as well of 
it's fine to have great aspirations. If that's disjointed from your funding mechanism, you could aspire to be the best customer-facing people organisation in the world. I suspect Apple's wage model would make some discounters eyes water in terms of the cost per employee. But that's what they've set the stall out to do. They see people once a year, maybe when there's a new iPad, iPhone launch and people bought into the brand. So whether their contract's up or not, there's people I know that will have the latest iPhone because that's how they want to live their life with the latest gadget. There's others that won't bother. Yeah, for me, there's that bit around if you've got a salary model, if it's workload driven, where are the gaps? What's falling through it? And I think lots of times it comes back to governance. It comes back to comms for store. And I know we've done lots with WorkJam and some of the other guys out there around comms. If buying teams, category teams, have got a direct channel into stores to say, by the way, this is coming, just do this with it. Again, they're circumventing the, the funding yeah. piece, which clearly is not in their benefit almost to do it because it might get stopped. I know you, you do lots of the analysis on the time and motion work and the efficiency study work and the role study work that we do. Do you see that come through in terms of people being surprised how long people are doing admin or how much rework there's done? Yeah, I think there can be a lot of admin. Very often people are surprised. It's it's things like telephone calls and degrees of interruption that again adds to as to workload because if you're having to stop and start something it takes a lot longer to do it than if you can just crack on and, and do it. So I think one of the eternal dilemmas becomes how do you do you putting your stock to shelf? In an ideal world, you'd do it with the shop shut. But actually, if you need those people to be able to hop on and off the till, it's going to take a lot longer. And back to your funding gap, is the funding allowed for the fact that they're going to have to walk backwards and forwards 20 times to put that fill that shelf up because they're having to walk backwards and forwards to the till? So I think you get those sorts of challenges. I think one of the bigger challenges, though, you know, you were saying there's the there's some, a bigger context piece. I think an even bigger context piece at the minute is about footfall. You probably, is there a, a minimum level of customer flow that you need to sustain a store? And I think there's been a lot of increase in retail space and lots of new places opened and probably less of less spaces that are working less well closing. I think that's a reality that a lot of customers, a lot of retailers are having to face now. Because actually, if there just aren't enough customers to keep, you know, the minimum two people in a shop occupied, is it really a, a viable, viable opportunity? Unless you're doing it as a brand flagship and you accept the fact that people come there and then they buy something from you afterwards, which works if you're a manufacturer brand. If you're anybody else that's just relying on products from other people, then that's a really difficult place to be in. And that almost isn't a debate then between service and efficiency. That's more about a survival conversation, which is something very different. And I think what we're seeing is collaboration is going to be topical moving forward. Just last week, they talk, the talk or there was an announcement of the B&Q and Asda one trialling yeah. two stores, I think, to start with Sheffield and Dagenham. And retailers are actually working on a minimum of one. It's always been the no-go, the health and safety, what happens, the security risk, what happens. But actually there's ones out there I know and we work with a couple of them that are doing it now. So that that minimum of one is is there, probably going to stay, probably going to see more people on it. The other thing for me that's interesting though is how do you almost flip that on its head and make that an opportunity? So footfalls down, I've probably got too much space. What can we do again without having to refit the whole shop? Because I know that's not practical or cost effective, 
but again, lots of retailers, there's some tactical stuff around retrieval, collection of click and collect parcels. How do you get creative and incentivize people to come and collect something? Back to the wider topic on this, how does your brand interact with people that click and collect? And for those that listen regularly, we'll touch on this in the series that's going to come out within a moment. Can you, or do you know how long, or do the staff know how long it takes to go and collect the parcel? Therefore, there's an opportunity to say, oh, while you're there, have a look at this, or you strategically position new ranges, new things, innovation, different mechanisms of helping people buy an an online catalogue, whatever it might be where they are waiting or the team are trained to go and show them something in terms of I'll be a couple of minutes because I've got a nip upstairs to collect it while you're there go have a look at this or I see you wearing our latest trainers is next season's collection so for me there's opportunity it's not going to be easy to access but I still think there's opportunity in terms of how people deal with that and that whole omni-channel experience just becomes a lot smoother or an upsell opportunity when you've physically got the people in there yeah, and I think it's been interesting that some retailers have been linking with third parties like Deliveroo to give them a really rapid delivery route to customers. So I think it started as food related, but actually if you're selling other stuff as well, then it gives you that that way to get things quickly to people. And Topshop were the innovators years ago. They said they'd deliver within an hour within London. I think a lot of brands can now offer that through the partnership with Deliveroo without having to incur any additional cost. Yes, there's a fee for using Deliveroo, but you don't have to incur all that cost of setting up some massive delivery system and employing your own people. I think there's a lot more ways to get to your customers now, including omnichannel and click and collect. Yeah, I can see a lot more becoming virtual. So as we approach Christmas party season, if it is virtual or not face-to-face, you know, why wouldn't you have people on hand who can do Zoom personal shopping for your Christmas Zoom party outfit? That You've got to be creative, and that's, for me, the strong will survive. The digitally native retailers have probably got a massive, massive competitive edge at the moment because that's just how they operate and think. Uh, But for those other brands that are doing some really neat stuff and that there is loads out there, it's not all doom and gloom, I think we'll just see some really really wacky and weird things we wouldn't have thought about six 12 months ago that are here to stay you know delivery like you say not delivering food we we know that they deliver vitamins and things like that as well for certain retailers so where where do you stop and where are the boundaries i think we'll see some amazing collaborations just stuff you would never have ever put together next have been really good at it over the years so they've done clearly costa i think they've got a couple of car showrooms in some way before any covid stuff but I think people will really push the boundaries of of what that looks like because wherever there's people, there's an opportunity to sell. So if you can bring the people, and clearly that's not city centres now and not regional shopping centres, it's more local stuff. Whether that flips in the future, who knows? But people will have to get creative and recognise where there's people, there's opportunity to sell. And it comes back to being clear about how you're going to sell things. So actually, in a lot of shops, it might just be enough to have somebody at the till that can take your payment speedily in a friendly way when you're done. And if that's the case, have you set up the rest of the shop so it's easy to find what you want? You've got information on the shelf edge that you've got other communication routes, whether that's your social media, your website that gives people more information. There'll be a lot of retailers that you ask and they'll say, oh, yeah, good service is one of the things we want to do. What do you mean by good service? 
do you mean you'll have an advisor on hand to answer every possible question? Somebody there to do upselling and trading up of people? Or is it actually you just want people to be able to pay quickly? For those that are listening, I think there's some key questions, I suppose a challenge from us to you, can you answer? So what's falling through the gaps? Is the, are things coming down centrally that the teams in store aren't aware of? Is that compromising the service? Is that meaning that people are having to work harder? Is that meaning that, you know, in your colleague satisfaction scores, those are things that are flagged, how you're dealing with that? That comes back to what is funded, what isn't funded, what are the contingencies, which then plays back into, so what's the governance for all of that? How are these things falling through the gaps? Where are the gatekeepers who's making the decisions? And back to Sue's last point, what does good service look like for you? And again, it's a million dollar question with no right or wrong answer. If it is absolutely that it's about speed of service at the checkouts, Therefore, we can deliver lower prices because there's less people on the floor and it's about putting the stock out. That that ties in with what your customers expect. Brilliant job. If there's an expectation it's gold-plated, uh, high-end service, but that's not funded or not delivered through the model and the ways of working, clearly there's a disconnect. So a couple of challenges in terms of questions in there and keep an ear out for our upcoming series within Moment because we get a bit deeper into customer experience versus brand promise, omni-channel, self-pay, self-checkout. So lots of things to look forward to. Thanks, Sue. Thanks.